Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, with Pastor John King. All right, two weeks ago we finished the first letter, 1 Thessalonians. Tonight, or today, we start the second letter. This, this letter will go by a lot quicker, I promise you. Probably um, three or four messages at the most. And we're just going to delve into uh, some correspondence. You know, a, a lot of what Paul wrote, most of what he wrote were correspondence to the churches. And so we're going to look again at this wonderful letter. Today we will be in chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians. We'll be covering verses 1 through 12. If you turn there in your Bibles. And I just wanted to, uh, for those that are kind of just stepping into our, our study, um, Paul is again writing this letter around A.D. 50 or so, 49 or 50. He's in Corinth. Um, it's been about a year since he wrote the first letter. Much has taken place. You know, you can imagine in a year of the life of a person in ministry, much has taken place. And obviously, the first letter, um, which had arrived via Timothy, again, Timothy is the one who delivered the letters, um, he came back with a, a report concerning their status after this first letter. Now, they were very grateful to uh, receive a letter from Paul. They expressed their love and their care and their, their joy in having Paul and the apostles with them. But as we'll see, it didn't solve all their concerns. Why is that? Well, apparently, and we will see later in the passages uh, Apparently, they, this church, had received a, a fake letter, you know, a false claim. And the false claim was telling the church at the Thessalonians that they were now living in the tribulation. That the tribulation that we've been talking about, that seven-year tribulation, had already begun and they were living in it. And so that confusion about the return of Christ, Paul has to deal with again. And we see it all the time, even in our day. Now, as we've learned from previous studies, the day of the Lord is a future time when God's judgment is poured out on the earth. And, and we'll cover that a little bit later. Um, but also keep in mind, when you're thinking about these letters from Paul to the church at Thessalonica, there's three problems that he's dealing with in both of the letters. One is the fact that they have increased persecution. They have left their pagan lifestyle, extremely pagan lifestyle, surrendered all. They have, you know, followed, they have decided to follow Jesus, and it came with a huge cost. And so they have increased persecution. There was also, as I said, false information concerning the return of Christ. He dealt with that uh, quite a bit in the first letter about the rapture and everything else. And then a third problem was idleness in the church because some of them bought into the lie that the end had arrived. And so they were, you know, quitting their jobs. They were giving it all up and then they were leaning for their needs upon this church. And they were putting everybody under a great deal of stress because they refused to work. You know, the, the enemy was working overtime against these young believers. They were, again, Paul was only with them for three weeks, and yet they thrived. But they also had a lot of struggles. They were confused, and they were frightened because of the false teachers and those who had become busybodies in the church. 
had caused problems for them. Additionally, if you're taking notes, as we go through this letter, let's try to keep the big picture in mind that Paul's been communicating. We, we live for this. The Lord is indeed coming for his bride, the church. And in a physical sense, we know that that means he will raise our bodies from the grave to be united with our souls. And if we happen to be alive at that time, then we will be raptured. Our bodies will be taken up. We snatched out of here. The church, we believe here, and this is what we teach because there is some difference of opinion among others in the church at large, but we don't believe that the church is destined or subject to God's judgment or wrath in the sense of a great tribulation. The important question really though, no matter where you fall out on that, is will you love Jesus' appearing as uh, 2 Timothy 4.8 or will you be ashamed at his coming? 1 John 2.28. That's the real question that you and I all have to deal with. And how we, how we prepare for Jesus' return, whether we love it or whether we'll be ashamed, will be shown by how we desire to live our lives each and every day. Because after all, he could come at any moment. So despite all that you hear and see, we know it. The battle for the souls of men and women rages on. We have sin. We have lawlessness. We have chaos. We have wars. We have famines. We have natural disasters. But God, what has he done for us? He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit. And all of that contains his truth. And what do we do with the truth? What's our responsibility when we receive God's truth? Our responsibility is to believe it to practice it, and to share it. That's, our, that's our, our whole job as Christians. Believe God. Practice what He teaches us. Share the good news. Amen? Amen? Well, Father, we thank You for giving us our time today. We thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for these uh, wonderful letters that uh, were written by Paul by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask once again that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I, or we, each of us, will be able to understand your word in a deeper sense today. Help us take something that we can apply to our lives, or just simply a deeper understanding of our security in you and our faith in you. Help us, Lord, as we go through this wonderful letter. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So today we're going to cover this in smaller chunks. I'm not going to read the whole passage up front. But you see, if you would, notice in verses 1 through 4, Paul's typical greeting. Paul's typical greeting. In verse 1 he says, Paul, he identifies, Paul, Savannah, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have are the human author, Paul and his associates. We've already learned about Silvanus, his real name, or a name we know through the book of Acts. His name is Silas. He was from the Jerusalem church. We know that Silas, or Silvanus, was a Roman citizen, and he was Paul's traveling companion. Timothy as well, it was from Lystra, south-central Turkey. And he was a beloved disciple of Paul. And we learn a lot about him. And in fact, next, our next study is going to take us through Paul's letters to Timothy. 
But let's never forget that just because it's a, we've identified a human author, author, we need to remind ourselves that there's always a divine author in charge and the one who breathes this. This is not a man-made letter to the church or to us. Paul frequently acknowledges that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That it's to be read among the church, which is why we choose to follow, we just go through the Bible here at Calvary Chapel, Elizabeth City. And even Peter acknowledged Paul's letters as Scripture. So, you know, this is, you know, you throw out all the debates, but this is where we're here. It's God, God breathed, he's the divine author. And of course, to the original recipients, you know, an ancient letter would have this format. And he says, to the church of the Thessalonians. This was a church planted by Paul and his companions on his second missionary journey. And if you want to read and get all the description and the details, read Acts chapter 11. It's a great review as to how Paul and his companions came through and planted this church. Notice as well in the greeting, he wants to remind them, and this is important for us, in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, to be in Christ. You belong. You belong to God the Father. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's something we need to keep in mind. You know, either whether you think you're a free agent and you can do whatever you want, or whether you're concerned because you feel like you don't have anybody that really cares for you. Well, you're, you're children of God. We are children of God. And we work under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, and again, he gives the, the, the standard apostolic greeting, but it's a great one. Grace and peace. Undeserved favor and peace with God, the peace of God, which you can encapsulate that entire peace of God, peace with God, in the Jewish term, the Hebrew word shalom. It's so complete and so total in its description. And let's not forget, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the source of it all. And so what he does is he begins to give them praise. Verse 3, he says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all, that's where you got that word, you all, abounds toward each other. It's biblical, you know it. It says, He says, we are bound. Now notice, he says, we are bound to thank God. What does that word bound mean? It means they are obligated to thank God. Paul, they're looking at this church, this little baby church up there, going through all these struggles, thriving in the midst of persecution. And he says, we are obligated to thank God, or bound to thank God always for you, as it is fitting. In other words, we don't thank God for everything you do. We thank God for everything that He does through you. There's a moral obligation to be thankful to God. Why? Because God is the sovereign source of all faith and love. You wouldn't be doing good things for the Lord. You wouldn't be empowered by the Spirit if it wasn't for the source. And we so often remember where it all comes from. And so he says... We, we are so happy. He says, why? Because your faith grows exceedingly. They have an enlarged faith. Their faith grows. It's above average. This is not your typical church, okay? This is not your typical plant church. They grew very quickly, and they thrived in the midst of some of the worst persecution. And no, notice, not only does their faith grow, but along with their faith, remember this, along with their faith, what else grows? Their love for one another. 
It abounds. It, it keeps increasing for one another. If you see a church, a body of believers that's weak in their faith, you're going to see a lack of love among one another. It's not going to be there. It's going to be, it's going to be diminished. Because with faith and fellowship comes together, that's the name of some churches, it's an awesome name, comes an increase in love. An increase in love. And so he says, we proudly tell others about you. He says in verse 4, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all of your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Now this is from a man and a couple of apostles uh, who have seen quite a bit of their own persecution. And so he, he's not taking it lightly at all, is he? I mean, we know that Paul was whipped and beaten. He was drowned. He was bit by snakes. All kinds of crazy things happened to him. And he's looking at them. He said, we are proud to say that you have endured in patience and faith. And we boast of it. Some have referred to the Thessalonian church as a model church. A model for what a church under persecution and attack should look like. Now if that's a model church for a church that's being persecuted, and we live in a land where we are really free mostly from persecution. Oh, you can find it. Shouldn't this be also an inspiration for us what, what kind of things mo did they model? Well, they, they, knew, they knew that they had a firm foundation in God and Christ. Can you say that? Can we say that? Do they said, they said, do we say that we know, we each know the grace and peace of God? Can you say that? Do we say that? Are we experiencing a growing faith in and of ourselves and among us? Do we have a love that grows? And are we growing strong with endurance? Because let's face it, life gets hard. All of the trials we experience as we walk through these things in our lives, as a family and a church, we see things happen to one another. We see people die. We see people have accidents. We see people get very sick. And He's, Paul's point is we are to grow strong in that endurance and in the faith and through all of our trials. So if that's the model for a church that's being persecuted, what, do we, what does that say about us in general, in the church, in a free society, where we have freedom to come and go, where we have freedom to gather? What does that say about us? I'm going to leave that answer up to you. When you consider the persecution today, and, and uh, somebody, uh, Trish Martin, gave us a wonderful map that we've had in the hallway out there for several years. Voice of the Martyrs, you see it as you turn to come down this hallway, right on the wall. And you see the world map, and you see the most persecuted countries in the world. Maybe we should stop by that hallway more often to say a prayer or to consider. Thanks, Ray. And not only pray and support those missionaries out in the, in the field, we see them as we come in the door here, the ones we support here at Calvary Chapel. But you know what? We can draw inspiration from them, can't we? I mean, sometimes when you get stale in your faith, 
You just kind of, you don't feel connected with the Lord. You just don't feel like you're moving forward in your faith. One of the best things, one of the best remedies is to go read a book or a novel or a story of a faithful Christian who's endured persecution and come through on the other side. That's one of the quickest ways to bring your life to your faith is to appreciate what you have here and to see the lives of others who have been persecuted. As with the Thessalonians, though, we also know this. Your decision to answer God's call has come with a cost. It's caused alienation or rejection from friends, from co-workers, and even family members. So it has come with a cost. We all have a testimony. We all can speak to that. I've said this before. This is a quote from Warren Wiersbe. It's worth saying again. A faith, he talks about faith, he says, a faith that cannot be tested, cannot be trusted. New believers must expect their faith to be tried, because this is the way God proves whether or not their decision is genuine. Faith, like a muscle, must be exercised to grow stronger, and tribulation and persecution are God's ways to strengthen our faith. Next we see, uh, you know, not, we're not just left with that whole, okay, I get it. I know life is hard, and I know things are going to be bad, and I know people are persecuted. But Paul does a wonderful job here of explaining to us the purpose for this persecution. The purpose. And also the promise of vindication that we all have. The purpose of the persecution. In verse 5 he says, Speaking of those trials, which which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Uh, King James says, tokens, uh, manifest tokens. This is the evidence. When he says the righteous judgment of God, in this case, this is what is a perfectly made legal decision by God. It's not condemnation. Sometimes when we come under trials and tribulation, we think it's because we've done something wrong, whether in our past or whether we're even possibly struggling with sin in our present. But a lot of times it's only there so that we can become be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. It's evidence for us. But it's not that God is condemning. He is allowing things to happen. And this may be an answer as to why we suffer. Because a lot of people ask that question. Whether you're going through it or you're trying to answer it for somebody who is. He says again that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Not maybe, but you will. You will be judged worthy a legal decree because Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ, covers you and you're not going to have to answer for your sin before God the Father. So it's a legal decree. But it also helps us to remember why He counts us worthy of the kingdom of God. When we, when we can be a witness to others through the things we go through. You say, well, what kind of proof do I have for that? Well, despite the persecution, you have an increased faith from God. 
despite the, the struggle that you're going through, whether you're getting it from family or workplace, in your, in your fellowship, you have an increased love for others, and you have a love for those who are persecuting you. That's the proof. Matthew Henry wrote this. Speaking of religion, and that was a term used often by the Quaker, or not the Quakers, but the, uh, the um, early, uh, this was in the 1700s. Uh, Matthew Henry wrote this. He was a Puritan. He said, speaking of religion, he says, religion, if it is worth anything, is worth everything. Religion, if it's worth anything, is worth everything. And those either have no religion at all, or none that is worth having. Or know not how to value it, he writes, if they cannot find in their hearts to be willing to suffer for it. Amen? Those are good words. Now at this point, I think it's important for us all to understand that Paul is not contradicting himself. Why do I say that? In Romans chapter 1, Paul taught that general suffering, suffering in general, everybody among the face of the earth, everybody on the globe suffers in general because of the fallen state of the world. And he even referred to it as the wrath of God in Romans 1.18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And what he's referring to is that general situation that we have. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, he explains that the whole creation groans and labors under the curse of sin. So, in today's passage, Paul, talking about their tribulation in their church, excuse me, talking about the fact that they are thriving even while they're being persecuted, is not referring to the general curse of physical death, sickness, disease, or even natural disasters. Everybody gets to, you know, share. Everybody gets a piece of that, whether you're a believer or not. What he is talking about, and this is very important, is suffering that is a direct result of our witness for Christ. Now, if you go through your entire Christian life, you or I, and you have no pushback, you have nothing. You know, nobody comes against you because you are a believer and you're sharing perhaps Jesus, sharing the gospel. If that never happens your entire life, I think you need to get, some, get with the Lord and say, man, am I really a Christian? Am I really willing to be a difference, salt and light in this world if all my life is when it comes to spiritual things is an easy street? Now, I doubt that it is. But what if it was? So all that to say, okay, I get that. I, you know, I understand that too. But who settles the score? Who settles the score? The answer is that God settles the score. You know, there's times when people come against us and we want to fight back. We see it happening in our political system, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't fight for what is good about our country. Don't even take that from a, you know, don't, don't let me take you there uh, and be misunderstood. But who ultimately settles the score? Ultimately, what happens? It's that God does. He says in verse 6, since, talking about their, their tribulations now, he says, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. 
He's telling this young church that, hey, you know what? This is going to be rough. It's going to be a rough go for you as a church. But it's a righteous thing with God. In other words, God is perfectly just in allowing it to happen to you, but He's also perfectly just in being the one to pay back. It says God will repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Romans 12.19 says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is, mine, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so it's, it's right. God is so righteous. He's such a righteous judge that every decision He makes is perfect. And He is so righteous. And so as Christians, you and I will be rewarded for our suffering with everlasting life in heaven with God. That's our reward. But for those who reject God and His offer of salvation through the blood of Christ will receive recompense or repayment or wages for their sin. Romans 6.23, you've heard it many times. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is death for an unbeliever? Remember we said earlier, everybody will experience life after the grave either in heaven or in hell. Death means eternal separation from God with weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. Luke chapter 13. But it is a righteous thing with God because in His holiness, He must deal with sin. This is one of the hardest questions that you and I are going to ever have to deal with. Ever to have to give answer to is... How can a loving God, how can a loving God, this God that you tell me of, who is love, God is love, the, word, the, the Bible says He is love, you've told me about His love, how can that same loving God send people to hell? Well, first of all, the Lord doesn't, He, he didn't create hell for people to begin with. He created it for the devil and His angels. And He wishes that no one would go to hell, that none would perish. Here's a helpful illustration when you deal with that question. Talking about a situation. A Christian doctor had tried to witness to a very moral, quote, moral woman who belonged to a church that denied the need for salvation and the reality of future judgment. She said, God loves me too much to condemn me. This is her as a patient. She would reply every time this doctor would speak to her. And she said, I cannot believe that God would make such a place as a lake of fire. Now the woman became ill and the diagnosis was cancer. An operation was necessary. The doctor said, I wonder if I really should operate. And he said to her in her hospital room, I really love you too much to cut into you and to give you pain. Doctor, said the patient, if you really love me, you would do everything possible to save me. How can you permit this awful thing to remain in my body? It was easy then for him to explain that what the cancer is to the body, sin is to the world. And both must be dealt with radically and completely. 
Just as a physician cannot love health without hating disease and dealing with it, so God cannot love righteousness without hating sin and judging it. Now that gets a little heavy, doesn't it? I like verse 7 because it's a promise of rest. It's a promise of rest. It's one of the things the Lord has. He says, and to give you who are troubled, rest. Rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. Remember the two aspects of the day of the Lord we've been talking about. First of all, Jesus coming for His church to give them rest, to bring them to Himself in the rapture. And secondly, coming with Him to judge and rule the nations. That's, that's what Paul is alluding to here. In 1 Thessalonians, as I said earlier, Paul was very clear about the fact that the church will not be subject to wrath and judgment during the Great Tribulation. Christ will remove the church and they will be given relief or rest. And this can only happen in heaven. When we say somebody, when a loved one is left, a believer has gone to be with the Lord, we say they've been laid to rest. We, you and I, have a promise of rest. You ever notice how when you have a day, tomorrow a lot of people have a day off. I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to mess your day off if you happen to have a day off tomorrow. But you ever notice how when you do have a day off, you think, I'm going to sleep in. And then at 5 o'clock in the morning, you're like, why am I so awake? Sleep in? Whatever happened to that? That concept went away a long time ago. Some of you younger ones, you can sleep in any day. You can sleep in seven days a week. I happen to know that, 365 days a year. But when you get to be our age, yeah, sleeping in, woo, what a commodity. But we are promised rest, so this means a little bit more to some of us. But notice it comes with a promise of His return. He says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. Well, now we're looking up. The word revealed here is apocalypsis. This is an appearing or a revealing with His mighty angels. You see, Jesus is going to return with majesty. He came as a little baby in a place where they had no other hotel rooms for Him. He came as, as a baby in a little manger, but now He's going to come back with majesty and judgment. He came to die on the cross the first time. The second time, He's coming as He's going to be riding on a white horse. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory... And all the holy angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. When he sits on a throne in Jerusalem, that's a throne of authority. That's a throne of judgment over the nations. Revelation 19.14 says that the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. So yes, there will be horses, there will be animals in heaven. Because we're coming back with them. You didn't get that one, did you? Okay, never mind. Gosh. How about Revelation 17, 14? This talks about Armageddon. It says, Those will make, these will make war with the Lamb. Now the world is going to come. The Antichrist and, and Satan are all going to rise up against God at the end of time. And Revelation 17, 14 says, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him, that's you and I, are called chosen and faithful. Those are not just the angels. Those are His believing believers, uh, His saints coming back with Him. 
So we have this to look up. We are promised rest. We are promised a second coming of Jesus Christ of which we will be a part of His second coming. The Battle of Armageddon, this is sort of the position that I hold, okay? This is, this is exactly how I see things uh, and what we teach here. The Battle of Armageddon will be a real battle in the future. Near the end of the tribulation, demonic influence will, influences will cause the king of the, or kings of the earth to gather their armies for an all-out assault on Jerusalem. The Antichrist will be leading the charge Jesus Christ will return to earth with the armies of heaven. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14.4. He will defeat the forces of evil. He will cast the Antichrist and the false prophet into the lake of fire, Revelation 19.20. He will bind Satan. He will set up his kingly, earthly kingdom for a thousand years, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. And remember that at Armageddon, the Lord Jesus Christ treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And all things will be made right. That is who is coming back. Jesus Christ. So there's rest, there's retribution, there's vengeance that he will hold. And notice he goes on and a little further in verse 8 he says, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. And again, we answered the question about why God had to judge the world. And so this is simply stating that. This is being declared. It's a day of judgment. It says, judgment on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That covers everybody who has not received and, and taken the gospel and received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Revelation 19, verses 15 through 16 15 through 16, it says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of the Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now God's justice will result in the eternal destruction for those who do not obey the gospel. It says in verse 9 of our passage today, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Not only has it been declared, but it's now going to be described. Those will be punished with everlasting destruction. There is eternal life after the grave, either in heaven or hell. Everlasting destruction, not annihilation. We don't teach that. But eternal fire. Jude 1.7, Matthew 25.41, if you're taking notes. From the presence of the Lord. You see, hell is not going to have any comfort from the heavenly smile of God. And it says, and taken from the glory of His power. In hell there will be no ability for them to marvel at the splendor of His majesty. That's why it's so important that we get the word out. And we tell others, and we live lives that reflect the truth of what we believe. And notice in verse 10, Christ will receive glory and be admired by those who trust His Word. You'd think of getting together with somebody, the joy of seeing and the joy of being in fellowship and people, especially if you hadn't seen them in a while, is wonderful. 
Look at that day, verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. Why? Because our testimony among you was believed. In other words, Paul and the apostles, when they were among them, it was real. It was real faith that those folks saw and they chose to believe. This is a totally different outcome for those who don't believe. To be glorified in His saints. To be admired. To be wondered at. That's what Jesus. That's how it's going to be even as we look at one another. It's like, man, you, it's going to be a whole lot different in heaven for how we look at one another, even in a physical sense. So what's it going to be like for you, my friend? That's the question, really, as we begin to close. Are you a partaker of His promises? When times are difficult because you've decided to follow Christ, do you recognize that He wants to prove you worthy for His kingdom? Do you trust Him? Do you believe that He will settle the score in due time? Maybe you struggle with the plain teaching that we just read that tells you that a loving God who promises heaven to the saints will also come in judgment someday, not simply to pass judgment, but also to punish those for all of eternity. How can you explain this when somebody asks you that question? One way is to point to the fact that God is perfect and so is His justice. God is perfectly holy and He cannot be in the darkness of sin. Jesus is God in the flesh and He came to seek and save the lost by living a sinless life, therefore becoming a perfect sacrifice. Wiping out the consequence of sin by dying on the cross and rising from the grave. So, in Paul's introduction, he kind of revisits all these things, and then he says in the last two verses, 11 and 12, we're praying for you. We're, and, and, you know, uh, sometimes we'll say, oh, you know, I'm praying for you, brother or sister, and it's just so obvious that nobody means what they're saying. And I think we need to be much more genuine in that. You know, maybe you can't express it in a way that will convince, but maybe you will follow through on those prayers. Maybe I will follow through on those prayers when I say it. Because it does make a difference. And so, here's another prayer pattern. Verse 11, we pray also always, this is what he prays for. We pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling. That's one thing you can pray for. Worthy, that you, my brother, my sister, my wife, my children would be worthy of the calling they have in Jesus Christ. Next, how about spiritual fulfillment? That God would favor you with a consistency in your walk. That's what you should be praying for one another. It says, fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness. So pray that people would walk worthy, brothers and sisters. Pray that we would be fulfilled consistently in all of His goodness, moral excellence, the fruit of the Spirit. And also, that He would, uh, and the work of faith with power. In other words, He would give us our consecrated desires, not just our fleshly desires, the desires that really mean something under the power of the Spirit of God. And that God would fully glorify the name of Jesus Christ in you, and you in Him, according to His grace. Amen.
Yes. When others see hypocrisy in the lives of those who claim to be Christians, the name of God can actually be blasphemed among Gentiles. Romans 2.24 But when the children of light, you and I, fellow believers, shine in righteousness, not perfection, not holy, you know, looking down at people, but people will see your good works and they will glorify God and Father, God the Father in heaven. Now I'm going to give you a preview for next week. A little preview before we close. Verse, the first two verses. And I'd ask you to read ahead. But he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter. Remember we talked about the fake letter. As is from us, as though the day of Christ had come. If you would, just please read ahead because next week is going to be uh, a great passage for us to study together. Amen? Amen? Well, Heavenly Father, we thank You for our time this morning. We thank You, Lord, that You have spoken thoroughly to us thoroughly to us about the goodness of who you are, the righteousness, that you're a perfect judge, that you, you will not be under any form of true criticism about your righteousness, that everything you decide is just and true, but also, Lord, we see and know that you're a God of love and compassion, and we're so thankful for that. And so, Lord, help us to be witnesses for you today and this week in our homes and in our families, in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. We simply ask that you go before us, that you would equip us, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might do your will. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling right now. I pray for those who might be shaken or troubled by personal things in their own life, by things that are beyond their control, that they don't know what to do. I pray for those among us that are shaken or troubled by the events of the world around us, the things that we see and hear in the internet and on TV and the news. I pray for every family here. We ask, Lord God, that you would bless the families here today, the families that find a home here at Calvary Chapel, Elizabeth City, and all of our guests. Please go before us, Lord. We need your love, we need your power, and we need your strength. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.